Poole Couch Podcast is a weekly conversation with Dr. Lakeitha Poole, a licensed professional counselor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about all things mental health and personal growth. The Emerald Couch Podcast is the go-to pop psych dialogue for self-help, good laughs, and real talk. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for seeking support from a licensed mental health professional and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. For more information about counseling and therapeutic services, or for assistance in connecting with a therapist in your area, visit our website at www.smalltalkcounseling.com. Let's start the show. We are back for another episode of the Emerald Couch. This is your host, Dr. Lakeitha Poole, and thank you, as always, for listening in and tuning in every week. Um, I'm sure if you're listening to this today, I don't have to remind you, but just in case, please make sure that you have subscribed, whether that's through Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. And then, of course, we're on social media at Go Small Talk Counseling and on Facebook um, at facebook.com slash smalltalkcounseling. Um, and we also have our website, which is where most of you, when you send in questions, do that. But there's also um, a blog. Our social media pages are linked to the website too. So you could go there for everything all in one. Um, but more than anything, just make sure if you are tuning in every week, and I know you are because we see you, um, please make sure that you rate us on iTunes so that other folks can find us um, when you share um, how you enjoy this podcast. So Thanks again for tuning in for another episode. So we are at episode 16 already, which makes this the fourth month of this podcast, which is kind of crazy because I don't think I thought I could keep it up this long. So um, I'm excited about this topic for two reasons. One, because I'm the type of clinician that knows my limitations and I'm very um, good about letting people who their gifts and talents lie in the area where minds um, do not lie. Um, in, inform me, educate me, but also then to be able to bring on somebody who is my dear friend for like life, and y'all will figure that out more when we start talking, um, to talk about a pretty important topic that we haven't addressed at all on the show, but I definitely wanted to, and so I knew she was the person to do this because she, in my world, is the expert. I hope that she feels like that herself, but I don't know. So um, this week we're talking about children and mental health, and so the theme or the topic title is what about the children and really just talking about kid-friendly mental health services because in most cases a lot of people assume that seeking mental health in some form or therapy or counseling is only for adults. So my guest on the Emerald Couch today is Mrs. Rakima Dolio-Parson, who is a licensed professional counselor like myself. Um, She's a school-based clinical therapist living in Austin, Texas. She left me here in Baton Rouge like I don't know how many years ago. Now it feels like a lifetime. Um, And also is in private practice as the owner of Centered Counseling and Consulting. And so we have been best friends since the seventh grade. 
um, which that feels like forever now too, growing up in New Orleans. And so we've been connected ever since. We went to the same high school. And then, like I mentioned, I moved, she moved to Baton Rouge first. And then I moved there and maybe I was there for like, I don't know, a year or two years. And then I think she was gone. So um, I'm super, super happy that we are both in a similar, well, we're in the same profession, but we work with different populations, but sometimes similar populations, particularly in private practice. I think both of us are pretty open, except for me with the kids. That's her. Um, but I'm really happy that we both are in the same career path because I have somebody to talk to one-on-one when I'm in a crisis about a client or I need to consult or um, or if I'm just needing to talk to my best friend. So I think just being able to have her here for this is going to be super fun. Um, and I'm, I'm super, super excited. So Rakima, welcome. Hey, guys. I'm happy to be here. Like Lakeitha said, it is um, so great that we're in the same field and we're able to bounce ideas off of each other. Um, she preceded me by about a year um, with, with graduate school and everything. And so it was cool to be able to say, hey, yeah, I'm in a different state, but how is this lining up there? And what, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that with each other. So that's super, super wonderful. Um, like she said, I'm, a, I'm currently a school-based clinical therapist in Austin, Texas. Um, I have worked in school settings my entire career as a therapist. Um, I've worked in high school, I've worked in elementary schools, um, I've even worked at a university in a health and counseling center. So I've worked in educational settings my entire career, um, which has been intentional on my part. Um, I love the work that I do. I'm working with elementary age students right now and that's my heart. a lot of the work that I've gotten into has been based on my own personal experiences um, of not feeling supported in an educational setting growing up, um, given the fact that I've also experienced trauma at a young age and going into schools and um, not being able to share that with staff or not having staff really take an interest. Um, and so feeling like I could have performed better if I had had access to resources and so um, when I got to college my family had plans of me being a dentist um, and I did not want to do that Um, I cried in lab many days um, and I would leave lab and go and volunteer at Habitat for Humanity and volunteer Um, I volunteered at a women's shelter um, and it was for women and children and the women had been previously incarcerated Um, and I really loved volunteering there and all of the work that I was doing outside of my science classes um, was helping. Mm -hmm. And so I realized um, without really the support of my family, they didn't understand what I was doing or why I was changing my major. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized early on that I needed to make a switch. And so ever since then, I have been in the helping field and um, I'm a licensed professional counselor. I just love working with kids and and being an advocate for them, particularly in the school systems um, because they need that. Yeah. And we are definitely lucky to have someone like her in the field because it isn't, um, you know, in counseling programs, super common to have a ton of people who are like eager or excited about working with children because it can be really intensive work um, on the clinician because, you know, you're not only dealing with that child and helping them work through 
issues but the parent has to be involved because the child's a minor and um i think that's probably why i've stayed in the college setting or up my whole career because i just i don't have time for the parents i can't even imagine some of the things you've probably had to deal with with parents particularly if maybe the parents are a part of you know the trauma in that child's life or at least not, maybe not being a contributor but allowing that to be a part of it because of environment or different things like that which I know we'll probably talk through a little bit but yeah. I'm super excited that you're here this is exciting yeah. so always before um I kind of let my guests share their knowledge base with us. I always just offer some facts for those of you who are listening um, and just know nothing kind of about this area. And even for me, I had to do a bit more research. I did take a counseling children's course in my master's program, but after taking it, I knew that that was not the calling that was put on my life. Um, because of my inability to like my emotional sort of inability to make sure that I wasn't sitting, you know, crying with a child every week because of being able to recognize that there is a lot of trauma involved in children's counseling or counseling children. And so I know we're going to talk about that, but being able to kind of even look up some of the latest stats on um, children in therapy or mental health for children was pretty enlightening for me. So I want to share some of that with you guys. So. Um, we love Mental Health America on this podcast. It's one of my favorite sites to go to. So that was the first place that I went to just kind of give you some updated stats. So first thing I think is being able to realize that, um, and I kind of alluded to this, a lot of times people assume that mental health problems aren't real in children um, or that they're just not common. And so the other side of that then means that if they're not common, people don't believe that there's something that can actually be fixed or treated um, or rectified over the course um, of therapy with the child. And so what we do know as truth and as fact is one in five children actually has a diagnosable mental health issue. Um, and nearly two thirds of those one in five get little to no help. So kind of just like what Rakima mentioned um, in her own experience in school, particularly in that K through 12 system, realizing that there weren't a lot of folks either paying attention um, or the resources just weren't there. And so, of course, when issues go untreated, they totally disrupt um, a child's life at home, at school, um, sometimes developmentally and without treatment that increases risk. Um, for other life issues maybe down the line, whether that's academically, socially, um, being able to recognize that, you know, short-term issues in the beginning that could maybe be addressed by a student or a child having a place to go um, keeps it from becoming that huge issue down the line that we might see in the in sort of adult therapy. So the folks that I might see, had they had someone like Rakima growing up, um, they might not be my, my patient later. And so it's nice to be able to know that it's not sort of this lost cause with children and, and that mental health for them is a real thing. So some of the things that maybe for parents or family members to just sort of notice um, in a child that I think, again, we often just overlook and assume 
nothing's going on would be things like a decline in school performance so poor grades even though they're trying really really hard um, consistently being worried or anxious um, in a very general sense so all the time um, repeat a refusal to go to school or take part in normal activities fidgeting or hyperactivity that's a big one I want to talk about a little bit later when we get to our pop psych uh, moment because I think that fits well with some cultural things I see that happen later in life too um, nightmares um, persistent disobedience or aggression so temper tantrums things like that and then of course depression sadness irritability so what we sort of expect I think most people to look like when they finally seek support and so if you can imagine like I said one in five which equates to about 15 million young people um, around the world having some form of mental health disorder um, obviously sometimes there are some predisposed issues that can also come through biology and genetics but of course the biggest piece that we see of it is usually family and environment um, and not having that support system sort of built in and so what's really needed is more mental health professionals not the scary ones like me um, to back down and not do it but we need more people to actually become more involved in counseling children and working with their families to be able to create that environment um, of really being able to introduce clinical services and then make them normal for them so that they can seek out the appropriate help and obviously live their best lives. And so, of course, every child, you know, with the proper support system in place has the potential to live up to their fullest potential. Um, but oftentimes they just don't have those resources available. And so we want to talk about all of those things um, in particular, being able to, you know, also have Rakima share just like how she got into the field and then her own sort of way, because like I mentioned in the beginning, this is a, I think a heavy topic because of everything that you see, how does she take care of herself knowing that um, some of the things she sees and hears with children um, can be, you know, really tough to sort of have to hear and see day in and day out. So just knowing that there there is definitely hope for um, children experiencing, whether it's trauma or just environmental difficulties, but we have to do our part um, in every form as a clinician, if you are a parent, um, if you are a teacher, being able to not take um, these issues lightly and assume that you know they're related to just behavioral problems or things like that. So I know we're gonna talk probably all about that, but those are just quick stats, just some things to know. So Mental Health America, the American Psychological Association, and kidsmentalhealth.org, three really great sites to check out if you're interested just in knowing more of what I kind of summed up a little bit. So I want us to just kind of jump right in. I know, Rakima, you probably know a lot of those stats already. Um, you know, what are your initial thoughts about like children seeking mental health or the services that are available just what are your what are your thoughts i'm super super passionate so my wheels were turning the whole time and yes i am aware of those numbers um my wheels were just turning so stop me if i if i if i talk too much (laughs) i think you'll be fine i think you'll be fine um, i am super i just get really um you know passionate in a way of like we need to do more advocacy but then i'm also super hopeful because some wonderful um clinicians out there and also as we talk want to shout out our educators as well um because these children are presenting to schools Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. five days a week typically um when we think about the kids with behavioral 
concerns, they typically are the kids that don't miss many days. Yeah. So a lot of um, those kids are presenting to schools and um, they haven't had access to resources. Um, I'm really blessed to be a part of a program that provides free therapy Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the kids at my school. And so that is rare. Um, And what I know about a lot of our systems and um, managed care, especially being in a private practice, um, it can be challenging for our kids that are growing up um, in low socioeconomic status neighborhoods Mm -hmm. um, to actually find a clinician that will take their insurance. Um, So I'm really excited about the work that we're able to do in the community now and provide no charge. We don't bill insurance to be able to see people um, because a lot of those kids do not have access to to these services and this is a new concept with that being said um you mentioned you know the struggle of navigating working with children because you have to get parents on board first Mm -hmm. um so a lot of the work is psychoeducational for the community um all of my career i've been really um big on volunteering and getting out there and getting the word out about services and providing free workshops in the community and since i've been in austin i've had a really um great opportunity to be able to do that more frequently um, Mm -hmm. and go out to different organizations and talk to people and provide free psychoeducational workshops. Um, So a lot of the work right now with reaching children is really talking to their caregivers Mm -hmm. and being able to do that psychoeducation with them to help them understand um, the process of therapy and what that looks like um, and destigmatize and make it less scary for them. Rightfully so, a lot of people in our community um, are fearful of services um, because they think, oh, I'm going to tell you something and you might have to report me Mm -hmm. or I'm going to tell you something and our business will get out there. And so I talk to people about confidentiality very um, upfront and I'm honest with them and I talk with them about um, that these systems are in place oftentimes to be able to support you and help you in their educational and so one of the things that's really hard is getting parents and caregivers on board, not because they don't care about their kids, um, but because it's, it's, it's just a new concept for them around taking their kid to someone to talk about things that may be happening in the home mm-hmm. um, and them having to do their own work because each of these kids are connected to adults, multiple adults. And mm-hmm. I've done a lot of work and research around um, just multi-generational and intergenerational trauma you know how that lives with us and so um in my work i look at primary and secondary victims of trauma and sometimes a kid could not have seen any anything traumatic but they could live in a home with a parent that experienced trauma um and that has you know an impact on that child's upbringing and their rearing as well yeah i mean and i i love what you said about the fact that you know most kids are actually connected to multiple adults that doesn't mean you know, I think we always think of just their parents or caretakers, but I mean, there's a multitude of people that really, in some ways, are responsible to assuring that this kid does have the best possible chance to live the best possible life by being able to offer them that support. And like you also mentioned that in certain communities, um, obviously due to stigma, but just also due to a lack of resources in general, many of these kids will never get that help um, without maybe us being more vocal as clinicians and advocating on their behalf, but also just creating a sense of awareness and knowledge about the benefits of counseling for
for for anybody, but obviously for children too. I think again, people just automatically assume it's something just for adults. So absolutely, what do you think about? I know from what I know about Austin, you know, I've only been there once for your <laughs> for your wedding, and yeah. <laughs> um, like I know that it's pretty pretty diverse. It's definitely it's probably uh, probably closer to more our hometown in New Orleans than Baton Rouge, where I am, but. Um, you know, what does it look like for maybe like unique populations as far as children maybe of color or children from, you know, unique family structures? Do you see any differences in that or are symptoms or, you know, certain diagnoses more common, anything like that? So when I think about like the differences, it to me, you will see a lot of the same behavioral symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um what is different is uh, the adult's observation of those things, right? And how the adult in their life or um, the educators or the other people involved in the child's life, how they view those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a difference. Also, in Austin, um, yes, some people may say it's diverse. However, there are some, um, it's segregated economically. Gotcha. So I will say that, that there are areas of, great wealth and there are areas of poverty yeah. um and then there's college students yeah so, so it is like um, baton rouge actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so in, in and when i talk about oftentimes when i'm talking about clients of color i typically am talking about interchangeably about poverty and so i want to make sure that's clear so not every person of color lives in poverty however due to the systemic things that we've seen um people of color they're overrepresentative in the poverty stats so I think that plays a huge part in it not just children of color just by being children of color having certain behaviors Mm -hmm. um but what it means to live in poverty and to grow up without resources um and one of the big things when we're talking about trauma in 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 the uh, amount of trauma people sustain when you are living in poverty um the likelihood of you maybe living in multi-generational household Mm -hmm. um, where you're what what I call lapping up so colloquially I would call that lapping up Mm -hmm. which is how I lived growing up with multiple adults living in a house um, to be able to pull resources together to be able to afford things but Mm -hmm. that also opens you up to um, the pros and cons of having a number of adults in your life is that maybe not all of those adults are equipped to um, nurture you or they may have their own struggles and then you again are vicariously experiencing what multiple adults have experienced and haven't healed, Um, which then contributes to some of those behavioral things that we see um, at schools um, or behavioral things that we don't see. So some things that I've worked a lot with educators about because they'll say, oh, well, this person is so quiet. This student is so quiet. And I think um, a lot of times that's out of survival. Maybe they can't, you know, be seen or be loud or kind of be themselves because they've been taught to be quiet Mm -hmm. or it's safer to be quiet um and not be seen and so I really work with um educators to understand that that children of color children that's growing that are growing up in poverty um they're going to present differently so when we look at those diagnoses I always talk and I think I'll talk more about it when we talk about um how can clinicians work with children Mm -hmm. um I always make sure that I rule out for trauma before I make a diagnosis yeah that's probably critical because like you said yeah. just based on 
the description you gave both of what you see, but also like talking about, you know, your own life, many of the behaviors that are presenting in a classroom or in the home or outside of the home, wherever, um, are typically a direct result of sort of trauma that this child may have experienced that they haven't even been able to process themselves, let alone share with somebody else about how to fix it. And so um, that makes a lot of sense of why before labeling them, you know, with the diagnoses that you would totally assess for that first, because in a lot of cases, it sounds like, you know, that's a root cause of why you might see some of the behaviors you see in a child that needs to um, participate in therapy in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, you just, you're dropping some nuggets. I like it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So then what about, and I know right now you're working with elementary, but you've really done all like the areas, like from kind of the littlest of kids Uh to the oldest of kids, which is in college students as well. Um, How much do you think even to, so you talked a lot about environment, like home environment, you know, also the influence of poverty. Um, I know we both grew up in households where there are like multiple people and like you just, you know, that's a very different experience for anybody to have. Um, And sometimes there are, you know, protective factors in that, but there are a lot of risk factors as well. And so what do you think outside of maybe home environment as far as like societal norms or societal things that we see? And again, you can tell me if this is even affect I don't know if that even affects younger kids but um thinking about high school and college age students I know they don't like to be called kids but they (laughs) sometimes still act like it um you know do you feel like social norms um and social issues social concerns so I mean we could run down a list of like the things that we see so poverty but also you know we see a lot of um racial incidences happening that is literally like you can't run from it because it because of the internet and social media and just things like that do you feel like that also plays a part in um that child or that young person's um I guess development emotionally but also their ability to seek help oh most definitely um I think just things happen on happening on can see it on television there's so much access and I think at such a young age um that kids are you know they have an iPod and an iPad <laughs> you know all these things <laughs> and um all this access to technology which can be great um when monitored but I think just like I'm scrolling on Instagram and Facebook and I might see um something bad that's happened in the world we have lots of access as people in general I know I've been watching the news lately I don't that wasn't always one of my habits but for some reason I've been watching the news lately I, I think it's I think it's what I, happens when you turn 30 yeah you, you just, turn 30 yeah. and you start watching the news at 5 p.m and I feel anxious you know yeah. when I'm watching the news and I'm like oh my goodness like what's happening I have to double lock the doors what's going on mm-hmm. um but thinking about that I'm an adult and I'm a therapist and right. if I feel anxious when I'm scrolling on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and I see videos of things that are just not pleasant things to see mm-hmm. content um, and I feel anxious about that with all of my wisdom and all of my training um, I think about young children that are seeing these things and no one's maybe having a follow up conversation about what they just saw yeah. um, and so I do talk to adults about that as well and also 
um, the conversations that we have. Like, I may be saying something jokingly, you know, if I'm on the phone with you and I am, if I were around a sibling or a niece or a nephew, mm-hmm. and I might say, oh, yeah, this such and such is going to happen. And I might be joking, but you leave that thought lingering in the kid's head and we don't come back and say anything. We're adults and we can rationalize that, oh, that won't really happen. That mm-hmm. was a joke. But sometimes kids are sitting with that for weeks and months and you're wondering why they won't turn the TV off and mm-hmm. go to sleep. They yeah. may be afraid. Um, and so, yes, absolutely societal things are happening. I think we see it a lot with our teenagers. I know when I was working at the university, um, a lot of things around DACA and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, immigration were happening and a, and a lot of we had to start some groups, mm-hmm. you know, things that maybe we didn't already offer. We had to be um, reactive because what had happened, it happened. And we wanted to provide support for the students because they were really feeling it. Um, mm-hmm. So across the board, across the age spectrum, um, things that are happening in society because our, you know, colloquially, our kids are, are kind of woke. You know, mm-hmm. teenagers, they know what's going on. Mm-hmm. They're seeking out that knowledge. They have access to resources. Um they know a lot more than maybe you and I did when we were 12, you know, yeah, yeah. we saw what grandma put on the news, you know, or what they said, mm-hmm. um, they've got way more access. Yeah. That, I mean, that's definitely something that, like you said, not even just for kids, but for us, but the difference is that for children, they don't, they haven't reached that developmental point yet to be able to rationalize what they see and separate right. that, um, and and in some cases it's like you can't separate it because DACA's a real thing or yeah. the Black Lives Matter movement is a real thing. Yeah. Like, you know, and so it's not that they even need to rationalize it. It's it's the fact that, you know, we are living in a, a different very different world than yeah, when we were growing up and being able to figure out how to make sure then that we don't ignore the fact that that plays a part. So I love what you said about like, you guys have to start groups and you know, you can't, you can't just sort of let those things slide. And I think in a lot of settings, um, like schools and universities, which is crazy because those are like our pillars of education and then mm-hmm. where you should be able to sort of go and seek knowledge and seek what you need. A lot of times, unless there is someone, um, who from a clinical perspective is also passionate maybe about those social issues, which usually have a lot to do with diversity, poverty, social class, things like that, um, it could go unnoticed and then leaves these young people or children left to sort of deal with that and process that on their own. So yeah, that that makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, so then what about for us? Like what about those of us who either have an interest in working with children or maybe we're going to work with a family. And so oftentimes children are a part of that. Like, do you have advice for clinicians who are interested, you know, in working with children? And then obviously like, and you kind of already hit on it, but you might have more for the clinicians if they are particularly working with like underserved populations or, you know, children of color or, um, you know, children from a lower SES, what advice do you have on the the clinical side? Yeah. So I think, really um digging deep into um the brain and trauma um like I said I started out as a biology pre-dentistry major (laughs) um and while that was not a good fit I think in um therapy some things are great and so if you are a person that 
looks for something that might be a little bit more black and white, you can dig into um, neuroscience and neurobiology and look at the brain and kind of dig in to see how that's impacted by the things you're helping to heal mm-hmm. um, and what people may be walking into. So I would say do a lot of research on trauma, understanding trauma. Um, and I think trauma is being used as a buzzword right now. Yeah. Okay. But when I talk to people about it, I give examples of trauma. Um, And so I would say to clinicians, really make sure that we're not grazing over that. I think sometimes it may be uncomfortable for us (laughs) to to sit with hearing some of those stories. And so um, what I've done is when I'm doing a clinical interview, I will give examples of trauma because you when I talked about psychoeducation, a lot Mm -hmm. of times in families, um, parents don't notice any behavioral issues. You'd be surprised. You would think, oh, at home, they're noticing these things are happening. Typically, people are noticing it at school. Um, and, And why that is, is because in the home environment, things are probably how they've always been, right? So how grandma was raised, mama was raised, now son is raised, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you are educating a parent on even their trauma. They don't know they've been traumatized. They don't know they've experienced trauma or some unusual stressor because everybody in the family has dealt with that and that's just normal um so a lot of times you're educating them that there's even anything to come to counseling about so when we talk about stigma you know it's not always stigma sometimes it's that they don't know why they would even need a therapist Mm -hmm. um because grandma dealt with this and i deal with this and this is how we cope cope, yeah exactly and how they cope may be maladaptive but if no one's ever mentioned that to them um they don't know yeah. And so I give examples of trauma because I noticed that I would say, oh, have you experienced any trauma? And every time it would be no. Mm-hmm. But I knew the populations that I was working with. I knew the neighborhoods that I was in. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I, I, I dug a little deeper and I would start to give examples and say, has anybody in the family been incarcerated? Um, mm-hmm. Has anybody been sexually assaulted? Um, have you ever been the victim of a hit and run? Have you been burglarized, right? So giving examples of things that are traumatic helped. And so the responses were different Yeah. when I gave those examples. Because, again, a lot of times if people don't have access to resources and psychoeducation um, and they haven't been outside of their family system to meet other people who will say, hey, hey, this is how we grew up. You right. know, yeah. they don't really know there's anything abnormal or um, that they could they could use some work to heal mm-hmm. um and i you know i believe that people are extremely resilient i believe everybody has within them what they need to do what they need to do and i just help them facilitate that um but again they ha- there has to be an awareness yeah. <laughs> um the, i would say to clinicians um really dig deep into it sit with it don't you know shy away from asking those questions and giving those examples um because you can help bring awareness mm-hmm. i would also share um again what i said about you know ruling out for trauma before diagnosing a specific maybe more stigmatizing diagnoses um see if if working together if you help to heal some of that trauma if those behavioral symptoms minimize um and look at that because a lot of us can meet the criteria for certain diagnoses Mm -hmm. right in certain situations but if we're not looking at it contextually about like okay what's going on now or do they sleep at night? What's happening? Oh, they're not sleeping at night. Okay. Well, it's because of this, right? There's mm-hmm. commotion in the house every night. So really asking those questions um, and doing your research. And then the last thing I would say to clinicians, if you're wanting to work with children in general, but specifically with children 
um, of color and children that grow up um, in lower SES um, communities, you've got to take a ecological approach. So mm-hmm. I would say you, you've got to work with the teachers. So whether you're in a school setting or you're in private practice, getting the necessarily you know the necessary authorization to be able to talk to the teachers at school um and also looking at who the the caregivers are in the family so not just mom and dad or mom alone or dad alone um but grandma because the kid maybe spend a lot of time with grandma or that aunt or that uncle um and really um building those and fostering those relationships Mm -hmm. um to best help and support the client well and i think you bring up like the point that i wish every program for counselors like made um a requirement is understanding ecological approaches systemic approaches multicultural approaches and competency because everything that you said fits with that and i think oftentimes those three areas and probably more that i didn't name get overlooked in the training process sometimes i think it's gotten better i know that we both went to programs that at least there was space for it, you know, and I know like KCREP has like, you have to take the multicultural class or things like that. But um, it really is about as a clinician knowing like this, if this field is really right for you, because if you're not able to realize that particularly working with children, yeah, you may have to go just beyond who you know to be the parents to either gain information, gain further support. Um, you know, we both use the example that both of us grew up in multi-generational households. So if somebody couldn't get in touch with my mom, then my grandma was the next best person because she okay. lived with me too. You know, she's she was there. So um, I had an aunt who lived with us. Like, I mean, it's just those sort of things matter in the grand scheme of really trying to get a child the support that they need. And so we can't just sort of take this like, linear approach or textbook approach to working with all children because they just it just doesn't fit in the box absolutely i've been doing a lot of work and you know to clinicians out there educators out there um a lot of work around you know working with non-traditional caregivers um one from my own personal experience um and seeing how it's hard and so i do have a number of grandparents that i've worked with throughout my career and Mm -hmm. so they are the primary caregiver for the child and so thinking about when you're working with that child how do you help work with that grandparent who may be grieving maybe they lost the child's parent right Mm -hmm. which was their child or they might have lost them physically or emotionally or mentally um and so how do you work to support a grandparent who maybe didn't think that they would be raising a child or be the primary caretaker for a child, but they care and they love the child, um, but maybe that wasn't their plan, you know, for that point in that stage in their life. And now they're having to navigate an educational system that looks much different than it did when they attended school or when that child's parent attended school. Um, There's barriers to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've got to really advocate to to look at those non-traditional caregivers and how we can pull them in and help them feel a part of it and help them navigate systems that may not be therapy. It might be something else that they need help navigating, but I do think that we have a responsibility mm-hmm. to help them navigate that. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, those of you who are students who are listening or you're thinking about going into this field, um, a lot of people think it's all about the good feelings that you get by helping somebody through maybe a transitional stage in their life but 
you know, advocacy and being able to connect someone with resources is all a part of it. And um, we're biased, obviously, as LPCs, but I think that we're the one group of mental health clinicians that does sort of all the parts that I think people think of. A lot of people will think of resource offering for just social workers when we have to do that a lot of times, too, is connect Uh Um, you know, and, and from the psychology perspective with the diagnosing and looking at trauma, um, thinking about the neurological perspectives of some of that stuff, too. We do that, too. So we're biased, obviously. But <laughs> I think, you know, being able to make sure um, that you all take all of this in, whether you're a clinician or a teacher um, or just someone who is interested, a parent, um, you know, being able to know that there are resources and support and folks out there who um, are, are great at this work, um, but also being able to allow that experience to be one that you take a chance on and, and knowing that you can find the right person is is critical. So I definitely appreciate all of those perspectives. Um, so um, being able to think about you. So let's turn the tables a little bit, just a little bit. Um, as so I always on the show try to also share my personal experiences with self care and struggle sometimes with self care. Um, tell us maybe like, what do you do as far as taking care of yourself? Do you utilize some form of like wellness approach or counseling services, you know, to take care of yourself because of the type of work that you do? Yeah, so yes, 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 and yes. Um, <laughs> self-care is really important to me. I would like to say in, in all of my adult life, I've never had a problem with taking care of myself, so mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at um, implementing things to help mitigate my stress. Um Yes, I have seen a counselor. Um, my first time seeing a counselor was in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think I previously shared that I experienced trauma at a very young age. I would like to say um, my first traumatic experience was in the womb. Um, and then throughout my life, I experienced trauma. My parents were incarcerated. And so when I think about self-care, and not only um, because of the work that I do, but also because of the things I've experienced, um, seeing a counselor in graduate school was super, um, it was important. Like yeah. I needed to do that. Yeah. Um, and then even as, you know, out of graduate school as a professional, I have seen, um, a counselor. Um, yeah. And I think it's, I think it's a great thing. I think a lot of times it's hard to say, Oh, I'm going to go see someone, especially when I know most like 90% of the therapists in Austin, um, how do you find <laughs> someone? And yeah. so navigating those pieces, um, but I have, I have done that. Um, I also do a lot physically, again, because I understand, you know, the biology of things and the mm-hmm. biology of stress and trauma and prolonged exposure to stress. Like I said, from zero to 18, I experienced a lot of, of stress and environmental stress and trauma. And so I know the importance of being active. And so I work out regularly. Um, I take walks. So something as simple as that I've started. I really love Audible. And so mm-hmm. I'll get some positive books on Audible. Um, one that I think I'll mention is Louise Hay. She's been great. Y'all should check her out. Um, mm-hmm. She has a book called You Can Heal Your Life. And it was it was excellent. And I would take a two-mile walk um, mm-hmm. a couple times a week and listen to the Audible as I walked. And kind of just zoned in on my own personal time. Yeah. Um, 
just to take care of myself and to clear my mind and not think about work or think about the dishes that I need to wash, mm-hmm. which I have some right now. Um, <laughs> we all but, do. Uh, <laughs> not thinking about um, those things that you need to get done, but taking some time for yourself with the things that you want to do. I love music. I love um I'm really into holistic wellness. I know Lakeitha probably knows mm-hmm, about know my that. supplements. She's and always <laughs> been like that. Like, even though we never talked about that in the seventh grade, I feel like she was researching it in the seventh grade. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've done acupuncture, which really helps with stress. And again, in this line of work, um, and when you're working with, you know, the communities that, that we work with, mm-hmm. um, you gotta be proactive in taking care of yourself so nothing's wrong but I I hope that with this preventative work that I do around managing stress um it'll stay that way and you prevent burnout that way um and you're also able to be present for your loved ones you know and have space for that when you take care of yourself and it's a great example for your your clients and um their caregivers to say hey take 30 minutes and take a walk it doesn't have to cost you money mm-hmm. um you can go outside and walk yeah. so yeah absolutely self-care is vital yeah that's i mean wonderful advice i don't think i could have said that better I, we have to be able to if, if you're a clinician to practice what you preach and um you know be able to set a good example but also to know that you can't pour from an empty cup and so if you don't find your thing that you know replenishes you or that rejuvenates you or just relaxes you um, it catches up with you and particularly if you're working in the field where um, there is a lot of trauma involved and you're having to help clients work through that it can be pretty difficult and so you do need to have that outlet and you do need to encourage clients to do that and if you are listening and you're a potential client um, to know that you can start now with being proactive to take care of yourself to find ways to have outlets so that um, issues don't pile up so I love that thanks for sharing some of your favorites I know you're going to tell us about some of your books later but um, I appreciate it because I think people need to hear that like you said it doesn't have to be these super expensive costly ways to practice self-care it doesn't even always have to include signing up to go to see a therapist um it can definitely lead to that but there are other ways that you can start even now just taking better care of yourself so i love it this has been a great conversation and maybe right there might be the perfect place to take a little break i know you're sticking around because you're just not gonna get off that easy uh, <laughs> with, with um, being able to talk through some of our like signature segments because I think these will be some good ones. Um, and even while you were talking, I was making some notes about some things I thought about. So I think this will be fun to do our signature segments. We even have a question, so I hope that even though it's Ask Dr. LP, it'll be Ask Rock today um, as well. So hopefully this will be uh, an exciting second half to the show. So we are going to take a quick break right there and we'll be right back. (laughs) 
All right, Emerald Couch listeners, we are back with the second half of our show. So this is all of our signature segments that we have every week, um, just to offer you a little bit more on uh, what's going on in mental health, not just um, sort of from that statistics and academic side, but also in pop culture, what things we're reading as clinicians, um, as well as answering some of your questions that you have about mental health. So First up is our pop psych moment of the week. And so this week, um, because we're talking about counseling children, I thought it would be relevant to talk about some of the cultural differences that we see in child rearing in general. And so the reason why we even get to see this even more, obviously, is due to the evolution of social media and just kind of what's out there. Um I know right now there's all kinds of, there's a hashtag for everything, but um, in particular, when it comes to sort of some of the things that if you are a counselor or a teacher um, living maybe in a certain area or working with a certain population to be able to just have a knowledge base around some of these things. And while in most cases on social media, they're meant to be humorous, um, there's a little bit of truth, I think, in every post that's up. And so being able to realize that those ideas around child rearing and I'm going to give some examples in a minute come from somewhere they're not um totally just obsolete and people think of this off the dome these are usually somebody's personal story from their grandma or the auntie or an experience that they had growing up so on social media you might see things right now like the growing up black hashtag so I see this one all the time and a lot of times when you look at them you're like yeah that's true you know so that might be anything from um the night before you're about to get your hair pressed you know and so the picture might be just you like it might be somebody like sitting praying knowing that you're gonna have to sit there and be super still and hold your ears so that that flat iron doesn't hit your hair doesn't hit your ear and so being able to realize that it's that's a small thing and for folks maybe in the black community not necessarily even seeming like a big deal but the humor in it is that it's a common experience among a lot of people to be able to to share and so you see the same thing with like growing up latino and so right now um the cardi meme is circulating um and actually has sort of like been a little bit more pervasive across culture not even just for um Latinx folks and being able to take a look at this one picture of this person who's a huge celebrity right now um, back in her humblest of days and the number of memes that have come out of this like singular photo of her dressed like I mean like a little adult kind of she has like a vest on I just told Rakima before we came back from the break that it looked like she was headed to work like as a I don't know how old she was but she looks like she's like six and um being able to realize that in some ways obviously like folks have used that to find humor but to also realize that in some cultures like kids that young are working or have some sort of role and obligation and so it becomes normalized and so when we start thinking about um how the role trauma plays in some of the experiences that children have in their younger years, you could totally see how that then becomes um, a bigger concern or issue and just goes back to what we talked about earlier of just the role that social issues and social media and entertainment plays in it. So everything from these like extravagant promposals 
Um, I did not have a prom proposal. I don't think we had. That wasn't a thing. (laughs) Um, I also, like, for prom, we did not even go to prom in a limo. Like, we went in our, like, dates, our boyfriend's cars. Like, whatever they drove, which might have also been their parents' cars. Like, I mean. Or my, yeah, or your mom dropped you off. Yeah, or your mom brought you, yeah. (laughs) And so, and I mean, we're not that old. So, I mean, just recognizing that things have changed um, to literally like where now going to prom is almost equivalent to somebody being asked to be married. It's just, it's a lot. And it adds a lot of pressure when you start thinking about that age group at 15, 16, 17, when you're going to prom um, or you're thinking about going to prom and your uh, your date does not go into this huge, lavish way of asking you to prom, which I don't know how they would do that because then they won't have any money to take you to prom, but... I guess the parents helped pay for it. Um, you know, so imagine being that kid, though, that maybe didn't get that big promposal and what that might mean. Or, you know, the girl that decides to do her own hair for prom when everybody else is going and getting their faces beat and getting um, sew-ins and wig units or whatever. I don't even know what to call it. But, <laughs> like, getting all these things. Um and you are, you know, kind of just being simplistic and living your life or that there are just things that come with, you know, the cost of things that cannot play a part in your prom or growing up or high school experience. And so you see that happen a lot. And then obviously they're also from a cultural perspective, we talked a lot about offering advice to teachers and other therapists about um, experiences that children who might be different from them might have so even thinking about things like sweet 16s and quinceaneras and um bar mitzvahs that happen you know recognizing that those things play a part as well and so the pressure that sometimes comes if maybe your family cannot afford to allow you to have that so um i mean we like stacked up for our sweet 16 oh yeah it was like six of us so (laughs) um and we did it in one night and like all of our birthdays were not that close like to be able (laughs) to celebrate it but it just made sense and so you know those are things that i think about now because back then we were also in an environment educationally where like that was the thing to do but when some of us would go home that was not like the home environment that we had as far as like being able to really just say like oh my parents are going to throw me this huge extravagant party because I'm turning 16 as if I won't turn 17 the next year and so um you know just really being able to think about how this overall might affect a child um particularly because now more than ever kids have more access to things so um any thoughts on that, Arkema? Like anything oh. I forgot? Oh no, no, lots of thoughts. You know, <laughs> lots of thoughts. But um, yeah, I think just from our own experiences too. I think about those those voices. I talk to parents about um, remembering that the things that you say to your child will become their inner voice. You mm-hmm. know, I still have an inner voice of my family members. Um, some positive, some not positive, right? Mm-hmm. And they may not even remember that they said those things to me. Um, but I remember that. And so really thinking about the, the hashtags and the memes about those things that, you know, being raised in a black home, um, maybe a home that, you know, has a lack of resources. There are a lot of things that stick with you. Yeah. Um, and then it's hard to navigate different systems. You come into school, just like what you said, um, 
going into school from a neighborhood that maybe is not the best neighborhood, but luckily I was blessed. My family pulled money together to send me to the school that they sent me to. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times the tuition was not, you know, paid and I had to go home and come back. Um, But I was able to hang in there and thinking about the fact that, you know, I had to put my clothes for the football game on layaway, you know, Mm -hmm. to be ready for the Mm -hmm. game. And so how the children that we work with, um, the families that we work with, how do they navigate those two different worlds? Um, Especially in those educational settings, it can be, it can be hard to navigate those worlds. Yeah, I agree. I think too, because now there's so much um, more for kids to be exposed to, you know, if we were comparing, it was because of just what we saw at school every day. And I mean, there were, I'm sure like through like TV and movies, but like social media wasn't the thing. Like Facebook didn't exist. Instagram didn't exist. Like none of that stuff um, was even around when we were in high school. And so being able to realize that, you know, I love what you said about sort of the inner voice that obviously a parent can give, but even that inner voice that comes from that kid who stays up at night and looks at all those memes or, you know, watches certain like reality shows and and sort of sees what people prioritize as being happy and healthy and then comparing themselves to that when in actuality in most cases it's not even that person's reality that they're looking at but you know as a child and you said this earlier they don't have that capacity to rationalize that in the moment um and so just being able to really be clear about that sort of thing and we don't have to talk a ton about it, but I think if we're bringing up cultural differences too and just transitions in the time, you know, thinking about um, some of the stigmas too around um, seeking mental health support, particularly for children, because I would imagine, and I think you alluded to this, you know, like it's the parents' fear of like what that child's going to say when they're in that room mm-hmm. with you um, that maybe doesn't make them look the best or that. Um, they worry about you misunderstanding and what's going to happen as a result. And, um, you know, you think about like shifts in culture. And I think I, I, well, I hope, I don't know. We don't have kids yet, so I don't know. But I think (laughs) moving away from like some more punitive ways of like parents who didn't understand why that child might be misbehaving or why that child might act out or why their grades suddenly decline and sort of take, particularly I know in the black community we used to a lot of people would use whoopings and ways to um discipline that just really probably compile on top of trauma I would imagine um and definitely don't help and then you have this idea for a kid like that who maybe is experiencing that at home who's also then taught to keep everything within the family and like you can't share anything outside of the household and so then that child who maybe does have that person who is a a clinician working in their school or who happens to have a therapist on their campus um, chooses to not say anything or feels uncomfortable opening up because of the cultural norms about keeping things privately too so yeah it's just a lot yeah yeah And, and I think that especially because I know we're talking mostly about you know children of color, families of color, mm-hmm. um, we are not, you know, we're multidimensional, multilayered. Mm-hmm. So not every person of color grows up in a home where those things happen. And so I think right. um, what I found as a clinician of color, I, I, I'm black mm-hmm. and I work with children of color. Um, even in those situations, it doesn't help the families to be 
disarmed mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. because there's assumptions about just based on my education level that oh you must have had a different type of life mm-hmm. um or you didn't experience these things you won't get it um and so when I do a lot of my psychoeducation work not always in my therapeutic work but um I do I am relatively transparent when I go out into the community and I'm providing free psychoeducation um because I think sometimes there is this distance that yeah. um even if you look like the person that you're working with, they put distance between you, which yeah. is self-preservation. So it makes sense. Yeah, it's like um, a hierarchy. Yeah, it's like they've created this like that. hierarchy or something. Right. But I think it's, mm-hmm. it's super important to have these conversations. Um, so that they get that while we are multidimensional, um, there are some things that we all share. You know, yeah. just growing up in general, even if you're not a parent, if you've been parented, <laughs> you mm-hmm. can understand. And my philosophy, this is my personal opinion. Um, not my professional opinion, but if a whipping worked, um, you'd only have to do it once, mm-hmm. right? And so, really looking at the fact that um, a lot of times, then, like what you said with the trauma, I've always shared um, with people that have children in my personal life to say that, okay, well, they learned that people who love me hit me, right? So, then what does that look like as they become teenagers and young adults and they're entering into other types of relationships? whether it be platonic or romantic, mm-hmm. um, how do they start to define and differentiate between between that? And so I kind of put that bug in the people in my lives, ears, not so much on my clients. I'm not that um, candid with them about it. I will work on ways through child-parent relationship therapy to help parents find other ways mm-hmm. um, to discipline and to, um, to work. And I have like a restorative approach <laughs> behaviors so that they can work with the kids through that and so that they're minimizing um physical contact with discipline um because I I just don't believe that it I don't believe it's the most effective way yeah yeah I definitely agree with that and I think um a lot of times it is because of on the parents side they just haven't learned any other way besides what their parents did or um you know, and that's not always effective. You know, change, while tough, um, mm-hmm. definitely is beneficial, particularly knowing, just like we've talked about really the whole show, kids are different now and they have different um, things that they're exposed to that, um, you know, that require a different approach. Therapeutically, um, parentally, like, you know, being able, educationally, all these things. So being able to have a different approach, I think, is is critical so just some thoughts next time y'all scrolling through and you laughing at that cardi meme or um you know you can relate to growing up black hashtag you know just to think about sort of the other side of it as well so that is our pop psych moment of the week so we're getting closer to my favorite part of the show not that the whole thing isn't but i just love (laughs) being able to share and obviously because of how long i've known you as my friend um i know that you're an avid reader and we laughed earlier like i said you might have not been drinking wheatgrass and doing all these other things but you are definitely always um finding ways to be enlightened um whether that was through reading or experiences and so I know that self-help and sort of, you know, wellness have always been a part of like your personal growth. And so obviously, because this segment is all about 
sharing what's on your bookshelf and you mentioned a couple of these but I just want you to share just some of your favorite reads um maybe you know tell us why if there's certain things about them that you feel like will benefit especially if any of them fit with today's topic but even if they don't what are some of the ways that you um you replenish yourself a little bit but then that other people can take and add to their bookshelf to do the same yeah, so um, I shared a little bit about Louise Hay and her work. Um, she is a lovely lady, and I discovered her once she passed away. Um, I was, you know, doing some research, and they were like, oh, Louise Hay passed away. And then I, I looked into her, um, and she has wonderful books in audibles, um, and she does a lot of work around affirmations. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's delightful, and I listened to her on Audible, um, again, around affirmations, and even in general with clients, when we're talking about kind of retraining that inner voice and um, rewiring the brain in those ways, I, I like to say that um, you have to build up your toolbox. And so when a negative thought pops in, you sit with that negative thought unless you have two to three positive thoughts that counteract that thought. And so mm-hmm. I love Louise Hayes' work. Um, around affirmations and being able to heal your life through those affirmations. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, so mm-hmm. I love looking at um, spiritual development. And um, and so T.D. Jakes has a book called Destiny. Mm-hmm. That's another wonderful book that I love. Um, very similar concepts. And what I found um, is that if we dig deep enough, we'll find what we need in all types of material. So mm-hmm. while all the books I read aren't always Christian-based books, um, you can find what you need. God will place those things there um, for you to be able to find them. So Destiny is a wonderful book by T.D. Jakes um, that just kind of helps you to hone in. He talks about trauma in the book. He talks about um, just different things that you're struggling with. Um, one that really hit home for me is that, um, like I said, the way I grew up is not the life that I live now. Um, and so sometimes I can struggle with navigating those two worlds. Um, and where I am now, and am I deserving to be here? Do I fit in? Um, but I don't fit in back in my old life, right? So really trying to navigate those things. So this is a wonderful book about mm-hmm. about how to do that. Um, so it's a great read. Yeah. And so being able to, like you said, have um, different ways of tapping into all the parts of your identity. So I love that you talked about, you know, both faith and wellness and wholeness and self-help goes hand in hand for you and that's because of like your awareness about yourself and knowing what you need to replenish yourself so I love that because I don't know if people always recognize that all parts of yourself sometimes need that boost not just sort of just focusing on the mind but your spirit and your soul and your heart um, can also benefit from having some good reads available Um, And you mentioned this earlier, like, you know, you like podcasts, you like audibles. Um, Is there a certain reason or there's certain things about them you love or? I think that they are easy and accessible. A lot of our, a lot of times our clients or ourselves, we are busy. Like Mm -hmm. American culture is go, 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 which um, maybe one day I'll move to Australia or something (laughs) where you can like sit at the beach and like rest. Yeah. Um, and, And it's more socially acceptable to not be grinding mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. um but they're accessible and so a lot of times when I'm listening to books I listen to them on my way to work I have about a 25 minute commute mm-hmm. um and so you know within a week I can finish a book yeah. um 
with ease and listening to it as I'm preparing for my day and as I'm ending my day. So it's a really cool self-care activity as well. Um, and I recommend it to my clients because, again, they're busy. Um, and you want to add one more thing to their list as homework, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you want to make it as easy as possible. And so I'll say, hey, there's like free audibles. Podcasts are free. So I'll recommend podcasts to them as well because mm-hmm. um, those are free audible there is a fee associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically I'll recommend things that don't have a fee for my clients yeah. um, that they can listen to with their headphones while they're on the bus or, mm-hmm. um, you know, for my, my my adolescent and adult clients, my parents, the educators that I work with, I recommend those things as a way to start their day um, because they're easier and they're accessible and they can do them while they're washing the dishes right. or, you know, driving, commuting to work. Yeah. And I just like you said, I love that it's just an accessible resource. So there are free ways to be able to get sort of that that boost that you might need. Um, So I love that as well. And so any other recommendations, any other like things you would want to share that you feel like people, if they had an unlimited Amazon gift card, what should they go get? (laughs) Okay, so again, I talked about um, and I didn't really hit on this, but you know this about me. You may you may remember this. I don't know if you if you had second thoughts about being my friend when I did this, but I've always been interested in (laughs) shifting systems and. Being a little activist. Oh my gosh, I do know this. Yes, I I I feel like that's how we might have met. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I protested lunch in the cafeteria in seventh Mm -hmm. grade. I wrote a song. I wrote a you know a sign saying "No justice, no peace." Yes. So I've always been interested in shifting systems, and um, and I lost my recess. So again, I I, I'm down for the the cause. I Mm -hmm. lost my recess that day. to protest lunch because um, it wasn't very good. Um, so I've always been a little a little interesting around those ways. And so one of my favorite books right now is by Monique Morrison. It's called The Push Out. And so she's brilliant, has done some great work around the criminalization of black girls. And so I work in a school setting. And so a lot of her research was based on girls in schools. A lot of them were in um, alternative schools. And so in that, we talked about some of the growing up black and some of the norms and some of the things that are happening. A lot of times the girls might have been kicked off of a team because of their hairstyle mm-hmm. or they talk a little loud when they get passionate, which I'm one who does that, too. Yeah. Um, and so then they're viewed as aggressive yeah. um, or you know anything could have happened they've been triggered by something that happened at school but again nobody knows that they are what they're experiencing at night or at home or Mm -hmm. on their walk from school that may be several miles um no one's really checked in on that and so they're being penalized and criminalized Mm -hmm. um and it's perpetuating that school to prison pipeline for our young black girls we talk a lot about young black boys um and and it's great work to do, but I think sometimes our young girls get left out of it. And so Monique Morrison did a beautiful job of um, talking about, you know, the plight of young black women in the educational system and how some of their cultural things that are just, you know, it works at home. It works for survival. They don't always work in um, the educational system. Right, right. And if they don't have an advocate, um, you can see how things work may not go so well so mm-hmm. that's a great read for clinicians educators anybody who might be interested in um shifting policy around different things or mm-hmm. advocating for anybody really yeah um, she so was definitely more. the advocate of our friend circle for <laughs> sure advocate activists like everything <laughs> 
And then I guess if I had one more, it would be the whole brainchild. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel Siegel, um, Dr. Daniel Siegel, and uh, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. Mm-hmm. Um, a great, great book. It has a workshop, a workbook associated with it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love it. It talks about the brain and it breaks it down into layman's terms or you can explain it to um, to caregivers that maybe aren't in the field. And also there's a way to explain the explain the brain to children. Mm. And so um, it's really cool. You can help them to kind of self-regulate by explaining the process that goes on when they get angry or when they're sad, when they're having a tantrum um, and really break it down. And so, again, beautiful work around how to understand the brain as a clinician it you know it doesn't use all the jargon so it could be a good introduction for someone in the field who's saying you know i haven't really studied the brain very much or for a parent um an educator and so i love i love what they do and i incorporate a lot of their work into some of those free psycho ed workshops that i do in the community yeah i love that well y'all have gotten literally like enough books to fill your bookshelf so i think being able to make sure that you check out these recommendations which i appreciate that they are wide range and who would benefit from them really anybody could pick up any of these books and um find ways to you know heal themselves but also to work with maybe children or clients that they might have um in a way that's beneficial to everybody so definitely check these out um i'll have links to all of them um in the podcast notes so if you're interested in any of them and you want to learn more about them you'll be able to check them out there and so that wraps up our small talk bookshelf segment which now leads us to our very last piece of the show um which is our ask dr lp segment we haven't had a question probably in a while so i was excited to have this because it's always nice to have um a guest to be able to also offer input uh, whether it's similar to what I might think or different it's always nice to have both so this topic this I won't say necessarily steers us away from talking about children but it's from an adult obviously um and it reads last month you talked about the cost of ego and not pushing yourself to the point of burnout as a woman of color I feel like this is unavoidable due to the amount of things we have to face. What advice do you have for those of us who don't even know where to start? Um, I think we talked a little bit about this, even though we were talking about children, but when we started talking about ways, if you are working in um, a field like ours where you somewhat experience vicarious trauma through your clients, being able to recognize when boundaries need to be put into place, recognizing triggers, recognizing your limitations. Um, and I know in that, in reading your question, for you, you feel like because of all the things that are on you, you don't even have time maybe to do those things that I just listed. But I think part of it, and this probably sounds weird because of the wording, but is to find some level of selfishness around what's going on in your life and being able to really learn to say no and that can be difficult when maybe you're in school or you have a family or um, you have all these things to balance but at some point and again we said this while we were talking about maybe ourselves as clinicians but as everyday folks you have to be able to recognize that you can't pour from an empty cup and you have to be able to give yourself the freedom um to and the permission probably more than anything to be able to put yourself 
first in in some way um and i just think that that's sort of necessary and i i think the other piece that you um alluded to or really didn't allude to you stated that as a woman of color um there's a lot of other things that come with that too statistically we know what our households really look like a lot of times they're led by us or um in the workplace some of the experiences that you might be having as a woman of color look very different than your counterparts um, who might be male or who might not be of color and so um, all of those things, when you start to think about going through day to day, the motions, they just start to pile up. And I always tell this to clients, it's like it's like a bricklayer. And so you come home from work and where somebody, you know, has said something inappropriate or tried to touch your hair or called you something inappropriate and being able to um, realize that, like, you go home with that brick and you lay that brick right there, you know. On, on the beginnings of what becomes for you at some point a wall between you, like your best self and your well self and this sort of shell of you that just functions day to day. And eventually that wall gets so tall that you can't see over it anymore. And it's much harder then to find yourself again because now you have to climb the wall versus just being able to kind of knock the wall down and, and, and step over it. And so... Um, I think that, you know, selfishness in, in the extent of not being like the cruel, nasty, selfish girl, but being the person that knows how to put herself first and draw boundaries that then benefit her family or benefit the people in her life, um, it's just necessary. And I think that's probably the advice I have of where to even start. I think it's easier said than done and all those things have to maybe happen in phases, but I think that's a good way to, to start. So I'm going to also, we're going to have S Rock as well, which Rock is, I mean, only her friends and family can call her that. So, but being able to um, give your input on it, any other thoughts about how this woman can maybe start to just take better care of herself or know how to uh, recognize her limits? Yeah, some thoughts on it. Um, I think I want to commend her on starting out by even sending a question, and that was a start. I know. <laughs> yeah, she's I like, know. I don't know where That's to start. Amazing. Well, that is a start. Yeah. Um, um, I think as black women, um, the facade of strength, you know, is a tough one to shake that we're so strong, we're so strong, we're so strong, and that's something that we've worn, um, and that's been put on us, and we've mm-hmm. worn, and we've worn it well. Um, but I think there's also strength and vulnerability. So my encouragement would be to be transparent, be vulnerable when you need support or help with certain things. Try to do that. That may be starting off in your journal, <laughs> you know, about being transparent and vulnerable to yourself about mm-hmm. what you're really feeling. Um, and then my my more practical piece of advice would be, it sounds like you are someone who works really hard and mm-hmm. um, you are a high achiever, much like myself and Lakita. Mm-hmm. And I know for me, what I have to do I make to-do lists every morning when I wake up and they're mostly around things that I have to do, like get a stamp, right? Right. I'm still mailing things, but um, (laughs) get a stamp or do these things for work or do this note or um, see this number of clients. Um, But I always put something on there around self-care because I'm such a Mm -hmm. stickler and I've got to check everything off my list. I make sure I put something on there for myself because I'm going to check it off because Mm -hmm. again, I want to achieve completing my list. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say maybe writing down day to day, you know, your plan for the day and in the morning, writing down three or four things that you have to do 
that you have to do for work or that are just practical around the house, you know, airing things and adding one thing that you'll do and just start off small. Like I said, it could be free. It could be a walk. It's really hot right now. Um, but it could be anything. It could be sitting on the floor and stretching, Mm -hmm. um, starting off small, something that's 15 to 30 minutes. Um, but making sure that you add that to the to-do list because it's just as important as what you do for your livelihood or what you do for other people that you take care of yourself. Yeah, definitely. And I agree. I think whether um, this mystery writer uh, knows or not, just by bringing this up means that you've started the process of even thinking about taking better care of yourself. And that is an excellent first start. So um, hopefully what we've offered gives you a little bit of comfort to just kind of jump in there and do it and between the resources that Rakima also offered today even some of those books um, I think could be useful for you as a great place to also start or, or a new podcast or whatever anything like that can definitely play um, a part and you getting going with taking better care of yourself so we're going to be rooting for you um, and hope that you can find your happy place so that brings us to the end of our show. I feel like there's probably even more stuff we could have talked about, but this has been amazing. Yeah, it's been great. And um, I'm so happy that you had me. And I just want to say that I'm just so proud of everything you're doing. Aww. And we all knew you would do it. <laughs> so oh it's God. not a surprise, but you're doing great work um, in the community and, and getting this information out to people. And, um, yeah thank you oh i appreciate that my friend but i appreciate you for being on the show definitely sharing your expertise with all of us um because this is a topic in no way uh could i have covered um at all just based on the the gaps in my expertise so i appreciate having you um and i hope that you'll come back for other topics um to talk because Literally, we spend, we could talk about this stuff for forever, and this is not even like the fun friend stuff that we can talk about. So, um, you'll be back, I hope. And, Absolutely. And um, actually, this is perfect way for us to wrap up what we've been talking about all month long, which has been our Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And so, even though we were talking about the general topic, of children in counseling, but um, definitely I think we shared some insights around um, underserved populations and minority populations that will hopefully be useful to those of you out there who work with children, who work as play therapists, teachers, um, other forms of practitioners as well, working in higher education, um, just being able to utilize this topic um, as a resource for you. So I'm super excited that we got to close out the month in this way. Um, And as always, I appreciate all of you for tuning in every single week. As always, make sure that if you haven't already to like, follow, subscribe, and rate. Um, And if you have a question, just like our um, favorite young woman now today who sent us one in, um, please make sure that you submit that. Also, you can do that through the website or on social media um, or through email. And as always, thank you guys again. And we'll see you next time on the Emerald Couch.